You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at Today we're looking at Colossians chapter 1, um, verses 24 to 29, so go ahead and, and flip there. Um, and what we see here uh, is the job description of a minister. Job description of a minister. Um, you ever been given a job to do without a job description? Like that's just a terrible position to be in. Maybe it's a simple task, maybe it was actual like full-time job and, and you just don't have a clear Description, what am I supposed to be doing? Kids, um, I know I've done this to my kids countless times. Um, maybe your dad has done it to you. He's asked you to, to go and do something or maybe to grab something for him and you have no idea what it is that he's asked you to do or the, the tool that he asked you to grab. Um, it's just a very helpless position to be in. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this job without a proper job description. Now let me ask you another question. Um, how many of you are ministers in the church. Any ministers in the church? Uh, I, I am. Anyone else? Um, trick question. Kind of depends on your definition. One might say, yeah, I'm, I'm a minister in the church. That's my job. I'm a pastor. I went to school for that. I, I have, um, you know, I, I preach Sunday mornings and do counseling and, and shepherding. That's, that's what I do. But the Bible, I think, uses a much broader definition of minister. Uh, if we look at Ephesians 4, uh, 11 and 12, um, it paints this picture. It says, and he, that's Jesus, gave to the church. So Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So if, we, if we're looking at that carefully, if we're taking that seriously, um, I think elders are that role of shepherd, teacher, and our job as elders is not to do the ministry, but rather to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the body, the, the congregation. So let me ask you again, are you a minister in the church? And the answer is yes. If you're a Christian, you're a minister in the church. Kids, you awake? You get that one? If you're a Christian, you're a minister in the church. John, I'm like a month in. I just, I, got, I just got started. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know the Bible well. I, I, I don't know the first thing about being a minister. That's okay. That's, that's where we all start. That's, a, that's an okay place to be, but you're a minister. You have a job, a serving role in the church. And that job is to, to build up the body of Christ to strengthen, to encourage, to spur on other believers toward maturity. You're part of the church, and you're not part of the church as a spectator or a consumer or a passenger. There, there are none of those. You're a minister. You're a servant. You're a worker in the church. Now, that might seem intimidating, and, and you'd be right to ask, okay, so what do I do? We'll get back to this. What's my job description then? And as we come to Colossians chapter 1, um, 
What we have here is Paul's apostolic job description. This is him laying out, this is what my ministry is. And and Paul certainly has some unique aspects to his role, and we want to respect that. And yet, he is very much an example for for us. As we look at Paul's ministry, um, we can definitely glean from that. What does that look like in my life? What's my job description? So this is, again, the job description of a minister in the church. Let me read uh, Paul's words as he describes his own job description, and then we'll try to understand that for, for what it is and make some implications. What does this mean for me? What does this mean as I um, live out this reality of being a servant in the church? So Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. And the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that that so powerfully works in me. Do you pray with me? Father, we come to your word humble and expectant. Lord, would you open our eyes to see your truth? Would you help us to be shaped and formed by it, Lord? Lord, help us to see where our, our thoughts, our ideas are, are running counter to your truth. Lord, would you correct us? Lord, would we be warned this morning if we need it? Father, would you teach us? Would you work in our hearts to see um, the gospel more clearly that it would be more fully known in our own hearts and our own lives. God, that you would be um, bringing us toward maturity this morning as we seek to know you more um, and to walk in closer obedience to you, Father. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we see in verse 24, um, being a minister in the church means suffering with joy. Suffering with joy. Um, Paul really kind of front loads this, doesn't he? He just gives us the bad news right off the top. Here's the deal. If you're going to be a minister in the church, and you are, it will cost you. There will be suffering. It's going to be painful. Now, Paul likely has in mind some very specific sufferings. If you know anything about Paul's life, um, he's writing this letter from prison. He's, he's in house arrest in, in Rome. Uh, He was arrested in Jerusalem probably almost four years before this. False charges accused of bringing Gentiles into the sacred space of the temple. And they had this riot and he was detained there. And he's been just kind of bouncing around, eventually appealing to Caesar and taken to Rome. And uh, and there he's waiting for his trial. On top of that, 2 Corinthians 11 gives us this just kind of quick overview. He tells us, of receiving countless beatings near to death, 40 lashes five times, three times beaten with rods, being stoned, being shipwrecked, 
danger from, from the long journeys that he's been on, from crossing rivers and avoiding robbers and, and dangers in the wilderness of hunger and thirst and, and exposure. And then he adds onto that the, the pressure, the anxiety of caring for, shepherding all the churches. Paul suffered for the church. He suffered for the church. He suffered sometimes because of direct persecution, people who were hated Christ and hated him because he was representing Christ. He suffered sometimes just personal sacrifices, things that he willingly gave up or dangers that he put himself in in order to serve the Lord. And he suffered emotionally, carrying this this burden of, of caring for the churches. And yet under all of that, he's able to say he rejoiced in suffering. And notice, not just in spite of his suffering, I think he's saying he he rejoiced in his suffering as he suffered for their sake, for the sake of the church. And then he makes this crazy statement. This is a a difficult thing to understand. And and as as we were in, in James, a few people said, hey, I'm looking forward to getting to that passage about um, you know, elders praying for one another, they may be healed and understanding what that means. This has been that passage in Colossians. A couple of people saying, what does 120, uh, where is it, 24 mean? Making, sorry, filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. That doesn't even make sense to me. Well, I think what he's giving us here is the reason that he is able to have joy in his suffering I think the, the and there could, could actually be translated for. I think he's saying, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, for or, or because, and then comes this statement, for in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, the church. It sounds almost blasphemous. Now, when Scripture says things that make us uncomfortable, we need to be careful. Right? That, that should shine a little yellow light for us. Slow down. Maybe it makes us uncomfortable because we're wrong. And we need to be corrected. We've been thinking one way and Scripture says another. And we feel awkward. That, that discomfort is an important sign for us. I, I, just, I don't want to bump over that too quickly. I think one of the most unhelpful tendencies we have when reading Scripture is that we are just so quick to dismiss things. You're reading along and you're like, that doesn't make any sense. I'll read the next verse, see if it's better. Oh, that's okay. I'll carry on. No, hang up on that. Wrestle with that. Let it make you uncomfortable. Sometimes we need to be corrected, um, but at very least we, we should desire to understand God's word, to press in on that. So we need to own that. This stresses me out a little bit. I don't like that phrase. Why? Well, it seems to suggest that there's something lacking in the suffering of Christ. It seems to suggest that the, that the cross wasn't enough. I don't know what to do with that. Does this mean that Paul is kind of taking part in our atonement? Is that what this is about? And if so, in what way? How does this work out? And, and the first thing we need to do is just kind of get our bearings biblically. Maybe it makes us uncomfortable because it contradicts or seems to contradict what we already know from Scripture, and that's okay. So Scripture does not contradict itself. So what do we know for sure from Scripture elsewhere? What is, what is clear that we can kind of hang on to and plant our feet on and then move forward from there? So I think we can say with confidence, Christ's suffering is not lacking. Right? There's nothing missing on the cross. 
It, it accomplished our salvation. And, and we don't have to go far. I think if we're just looking in Colossians itself, Paul's not schizophrenic. He's not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He said back in, in verse 19, look at that, 119, in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, period, through Jesus, Jesus alone, to reconcile to himself all things, whether heaven or, in, or sorry, in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The cross did it. The cross was sufficient for, for reconciliation. He doesn't say Jesus and Paul. No, he makes a point of lifting Jesus up. Jesus is enough. Jesus is more than enough. And then if we just bump down to, to chapter 2, verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him with Jesus, having given, forgiven us all our trespasses, all of our trespasses forgiven in Jesus by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do it? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It all happened on Jesus. That's why Jesus is able to say at the end of his crucifixion, it is finished. There's nothing more to be done. So, the death of Christ is sufficient for our salvation. We're saved by trusting in Christ and Christ alone. We're not crazy. That's a good place to start. We have salvation in him. So then we have to ask, what does this mean? If it doesn't mean that something was lacking on the cross, what does this mean? Well, I think it's helpful also to just start to ask some questions um, one of the questions being, where does Paul use language like this elsewhere? Does he, does he use this language in another place that, that maybe would help make sense of this? And he does. Um, Philippians 3, uh, sorry, 2.30 uh, is just, I think, a gift for us in understanding this passage. Paul's talking about Epaphroditus, who was a, a messenger that was carrying a financial gift from the city of Philippi, the church in Philippi, to Paul. And Paul says this, listen to these words. For he nearly died... For the work of Christ, he's suffering, just like Paul's talking about, risking his life, completing what was lacking in your service to me. Very similar language. Epaphroditus completed what was lacking in the gift of the Philippians. How did he complete what was lacking? In what way? Well, he delivered it. He didn't add to the gift. He didn't add money to the pot. Maybe, maybe he did before he left. I don't know. Um, but, but he's completing what was lacking in suffering and serving Paul by bringing the gift from Philippi to Paul. The gift is, is great and it's there and it's sufficient. But if it's sitting in Philippi, it's not having its intended effect. It's not having the full work that was intended. And so Epaphroditus is filling that up as he brings the gift from Philippi to Paul. Now let's bring that back into Colossians. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake because in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, the church. And the, the language even in that verse kind of gives us another confirmation. Um, the, word, um, the, the root word there is plerao, to fill up. And, uh, and yet Paul kind of puts this prefix on it, antanath uh, plerao. And what he means by that is it, it changes it to like filling up for you, filling up for your benefit, filling up to you. 
He's completing the work of Christ, not by adding at all to what Jesus did on the cross, but by delivering it. He's bringing it to them. And then look at verse 25. I think, again, kind of gives us confirmation in this thinking. Um, Paul uses the same root word here, filling up. That's plerao again. Making fully known in verse 25. So, How is Paul filling up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ um, by suffering and serving the church, making the gospel fully known, proclaiming it? That's all that's lacking. That's all that's missing in the sacrifice of Christ is that it just hasn't been declared to all of creation yet. It hasn't been taken out. So that's what Paul is up to. That's what Paul's talking about here in his suffering. He's completing this work of Christ by bringing it out, um, particularly to the Gentiles. Now, let's tie this in a little more theologically, a little more biblically. Um, This is a little bit heady, so some of you are going to be taking notes furiously. Some of you are going to be taking your mid-service nap. That's okay. I'll wake you up when we're done. Um, The book of Isaiah. Love Isaiah. Spent some some time in Isaiah a couple of weeks ago and just had it kind of um, refreshed in that. And uh, Isaiah has these four songs um, of the servant, these four servant songs. You're familiar with Isaiah 53, right? Um, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. That's, that's a, one of the servant songs. That's the suffering servant. And so Isaiah has these servant songs and they're pointing forward. They're prophetic, looking to Jesus But the language of servant in Isaiah is quite flexible. It's used a few different ways. And so um, Israel, the nation of Israel, is called God's servant in a way that points to Jesus. It's still kind of looking forward to Jesus, but it uses Israel as kind of this this type, this analogy in the meantime. Uh, Cyrus, who brought Israel back to their land and restored them, um, he's called the servant as well. Again, ultimately pointing forward to Jesus, but he bears that title in the book of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 49.6 is one of those servant songs. It's prophesying about Jesus, and he says this. Listen, he says, that's the Lord says, It is too light a thing that you, Jesus, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations." that my salvation shall reach the end of the earth. What a, what a glorious passage. Man, in Isaiah already, God was saying, oh, my servant who's going to come, he's not just going to rescue Israel. This gospel is going to the world. But that's looking forward to Jesus. And then, and then listen to this in, in Acts 13. Listen to how Paul takes this passage and, and shifts it. He says, for so the Lord has commanded us. Paul, the Christians, he's, he's commanded us. And then he quotes Isaiah 49, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul picks up on that servant language and he applies it to himself and to the church. Now here in Colossians, Paul speaks of himself as a, a minister. The word there is diakonos, could well be translated servant. And what's he doing? He's suffering. He's a suffering servant. Why is he suffering? He's suffering to bring the gospel, the light, to the nations. 
So like Cyrus and, and Israel were, were part of this kind of servant theme pointing forward to Jesus, Paul sees himself and us as the, what are we? We're the body of Christ, as servants of God, as lights pointing to the light pointing back to Jesus. And so we're part of this kind of theological theme of the servant of God. There's this connection in our suffering as the body of Christ, taking the gospel out to the nations. We are in a sense linked with the suffering of Jesus. We're part of this stream of what God is doing. So in a way, Paul and even us are filling up the sufferings of the servant of God. Again, not in any way adding to his atoning sacrifice, um, but completing that work as, as messengers of the gospel. So think about this. Our calling, our, our ministry is theologically tied to Christ in, 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 a, in a ministry of suffering for the gospel. So we ought, we ought to be able to say with Paul, I rejoice in my suffering. I rejoice in my suffering because in my suffering for the gospel, I'm kind of taking part, I'm I'm doing my part in this completion of the great and glorious work of Christ. Ministry and suffering are inextricably linked together. They can't come apart. We suffer for the church. We suffer with Jesus. We suffer with Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Join the party. Join the suffering. We're we're going together. Are you willing to suffer? Are you able to even rejoice in suffering for the sake of the body of Christ? Now let's just stir the elephant in the room somewhat. There's a huge disagreement in the church right now. What path of suffering for the sake of the body should we be taking? Which way is best? Some are seeking to honor Christ, saying, hey, Christ is the head of the church and we need to take a stand like, like Peter and James did in the temple. We need to, we need to stand up and say, no, um, we, we're going to obey God rather than man. We need to gather. We need to meet together. Others are seeking to honor Christ, saying, hey, Jesus is the head of the church. And they're looking at commands like Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and saying with the saints in Hebrews 11, hey, we're, we're willing to be mistreated, even joyfully have our belongings plundered for the sake of Christ. At this point, we're just going to humbly submit to government restrictions to honor Christ, to obey Him. I have to listen. Think about this. Listen carefully. Both sides are seeking to honor Christ as Lord. Both sides of this agree that Jesus is the head of the church. Nobody disagrees with that. If you do, you're off in one of the ditches. Both sides are standing on biblical conviction. And and again, there's sinful ditches on either side, for sure, that we could fall into. We need to guard ourselves. But there is a large area in the middle that is gray. It's wisdom. How do we walk through this? How do we hold these two things in tension and and honor the Lord and serve his church the best way that we can? We need to have grace with one another in the midst of that. We need to seek to honor the Lord united in Christ. 
But here's what I want to ask of you right now. Rather than reading scripture as we are so prone to do and thinking about someone else, how come they're not suffering that way? We need to put it to ourselves. That should always be our first posture before God's word. Oh, man, I don't know if you do this. I do this. I have to fight this. You read a passage and you think, oh, man, I wish so-and-so was reading this right now. Oh, I know what this means for, for that situation. What does it mean for me? That's where we have to start. Am I accepting my current suffering with joy for the sake of the gospel? Am I able to to walk through this, whichever path you choose through that gray area? Am I grumbling and complaining? Am I fearful and frustrated? Am I impatient and, and aggravated? If you're angry in this, that's a problem. Am I able to recognize, hey, this world is not my home? The way that I face suffering is a testimony. It speaks of Christ. It's a witness to those around me. And whichever path you choose through this, your heart attitude will speak louder to the world and matter more to the Lord than than physically which path you choose. We need to push this beyond COVID. Um, Ministry in the church, in the best of times, In the best of times, it requires discomfort, suffering, sacrifice. It always does. Right now in North America, that suffering is so mild. Comparatively to the church through the ages, um, it's mild. But we need to embrace that. We still need to recognize that. So often, I think we're so prone to think, well, that's just mild suffering. It doesn't even really count as suffering. But then we let it stop us from doing what we were supposed to do because we didn't take it into account. And we end up disobedient because of avoiding mild suffering. And we think, well, I mean, if I was going to die for Christ, I would. I could, I could do that. If my, my head was on the chopping block, I would stand for him. But, but boy, I just, can't, I just can't do another night a week out for small group. That's just too much sacrifice. I can't do it. Sacrifice is, is part of ministry. It, it, it costs something to get together. Um, Sacrificing, a, like I said, a night of the week to go to small group. Sacrificing the, the comfort of your home to open it up to someone in need or just to have another family over for dinner. Sacrificing maybe some of the luxuries and comforts in this life to be able to give financially to the church or to a, a missionary in need. Sacrificing my comfort zone, pushing beyond just that never-ending conversation of, of sports and weather and, and getting into, how's your walk with the Lord? What's God teaching you in his word? How can I pray for you? I don't like those conversations. That makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, do it. Do it. True ministry is always marked by sacrifice, by suffering. Don't let it, don't let it be that, that sneaky suffering that stops you from doing because you didn't realize what it was. We ought to joyfully embrace that for the sake of the body with this really cool theological conviction that in my suffering, in this discomfort, I'm actually filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. So that's the first thing, suffering with joy. Secondly, uh, as a minister in the church, we suffer with joy as stewards 
of grace. We're stewards of grace. Look at verses uh, 25 down to 27. So we're talking about the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul's a, a servant. He's a, a minister in the church. And let's just be reminded, he's not talking about a building. He's not talking about a Sunday morning gathering. He's talking about the believers, the body of Christ. And what made him a servant in the body? Uh, a stewardship. To be a steward means to be trusted with something important. To be trusted with something important. Um, i got to confess, I tried to think of a different example, but when I think of stewardship, I think of Batman. Anyone know who I'm thinking about? You think of stewardship and the Batman? Who's the steward? No. What? Alfred. Alfred the butler, right? Remember him? Okay, he's, Bruce Wayne's parents died and they left behind this massive fortune and this huge mansion and this thriving business and, and their son. Alfred doesn't own any of it. It's not his. It doesn't belong to him. But he's trusted to care for it. And so he took care of the house. He kept the business alive. He raised young Bruce. And you can just see his demeanor, right? I mean, he, he takes that so seriously. It's a matter of pride for him. I will be this caretaker, this steward. And he does it well. Do you see the picture? We've been entrusted. We've been made stewards. Stewards of what? What have we been entrusted with? The gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. Paul calls it the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations. Um, Paul's saying Jesus left. Jesus has gone up into heaven to be with his Father. And he's left us as caretakers of the gospel in his place. The mystery, he calls it. And when, when Paul talks about mystery... Um, it isn't that we can't know it or don't understand it or something kind of um, mysterious in that sense. Um, the, the, the phrase that's, that's helpful to understand Paul's use of the word mystery uh, is once concealed, now revealed, right? Old Testament, it was concealed. It was hidden. It, it, there's prophecies of it as we already saw, but it was always veiled. It was never fully clear. New Testament, it's been revealed. It's been shown that the, the veil has been taken away. It used to be hidden in the Old Testament. Now it's clear. The mystery is revealed. That, that's what Paul's talking about. And the mystery was that God himself would come down in the person of Jesus Christ, die on the cross so that not just the, the Jews, but all who believe in him could be forgiven, could be saved. So verse 27, Paul says, this is the mystery. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. What an amazing statement. We just finished talking about Christ who, who created the world and who uh, holds it together by the might of his power and who is the one who's going to reconcile all things to himself. And he is in us. That's our hope of glory. Paul's role as a steward of the gospel is somewhat unique. 
right? Paul was entrusted to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He's called the apostle to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. To take this mystery of the good news of Jesus and to take it specifically to the nations around Israel. Tell them, hey, that, that Messiah that Israel's been waiting for and talking about for so many ages, he's come and it's not just for them, it's for everyone. So Paul's entrusted to take the gospel to the Gentiles and he takes that so seriously. Paul gave his life for that mission without holding back. Nothing else mattered. I love uh, Acts 20, 24. Paul says, I did not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Nothing else matters. Nothing else is more important. My comfort, my free time, my hopes and dreams, my rights and freedoms. I'll give that all up. I'll set that aside. Because the only thing that matters is that I fulfill this ministry, this stewardship that has been given to me. Now, none of us are apostles. Let's just take that weight off. Um, But we're stewards. We are ministers. Not, Not quite the same way Paul is, but in a very real way. We are made ministers in the church. We have also been entrusted with this gospel. Paul puts it pretty succinctly, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. It says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We love that verse. It talks about our salvation, our, our transformation in Christ. But, but look at the next verse. All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So if you've been reconciled to God, if you know him in Christ, you have been given a job. You have then been made a minister of reconciliation. You have been given a stewardship. You have a sacred trust by God. Now it seems to me we could get a little confused at this point. And you might be asking, okay, but what exactly is that stewardship? What does that look like Is it serving the body, the church, the the believers? Or is it proclaiming the gospel to the lost? Because we've kind of blended those together. So is it serving the church or is it evangelism? And and often I think we kind of go one way or the other. You see, um, you know, particular bodies of believers that are all about evangelism or all about uh, discipleship. And and we kind of split those two. I don't think Paul splits them. I don't think he makes a distinction. Notice in verse 24... It says that he's suffering for who? He's suffering for the body of Christ. He's suffering for the church. And then verses 25 and 27 is serving the body. How? By making the gospel fully known, proclaiming it to the Gentiles, to the lost. He he blends those. I think when Paul speaks of the body of Christ here, um, he's thinking of it kind of like Jesus does in, in John 10, 16. Jesus says this really interesting statement. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They're my sheep. I have them, but they're not of this fold. They're not part of Israel, and they're not here following me. He says, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So so Jesus sees his, his flock, and some of them are gathered, and some of them are still scattered, but they're all his flock. 
They're all his sheep. They're still out there. So Paul uh, proclaims the gospel serving the body of Christ. As that body is being assembled. As parts of that body that have been estranged until now are being brought in and given new life. And so are we talking about evangelism or are we talking about serving the church? And it's yes, it, it flows together. We don't have to separate evangelism and discipleship in that way necessarily. So we see that um, down in, in, in verse 28 as well, but we'll, we'll get to that. So you have been entrusted with the gospel. How do we fulfill this stewardship? What's your role? What do you do? We see Paul's role, this, this apostle to the Gentiles. What about me? Well, 1 Peter 4, um, 10 and 11 uses this language of stewardship. It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve. The, the word there is minister. Use it to minister to one another as God's stewards, or sorry, as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so there's, there's different gifts. We have, we have different unique stewardships in that way. So it says whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves uh, by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, so you have been uniquely gifted for your ministry. That's kind of Peter's emphasis here is that however we serve, and we all serve in different ways, but we do it in God's strength so that God gets the glory. That's the emphasis. But, but he tells us, hey, you have your own gift. You have your own unique way that God has put you together. And I would add, it's not only that, that he's given you a unique gift, but he's put you in a unique place, in a specific body to use that gift. Can you say with Paul, that you are giving your life as a steward of God's grace for the service of his body. The rest of us, maybe not an apostle, but that doesn't let us off the hook. Right? We are indebted to grace. We've been rescued, saved. We've been reconciled to God. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are all on the same playing field here. I know more than anyone else. I'm a minister of the church. We just have different roles, different gifts, different niches to fill. And, and that's going to look different for each person. God doesn't have kind of cookie cutter gifts. Um, you have a unique mixture of, of talents and personality, the way that you think, the way that you operate. Some of those gifts are maybe going to play out well in, a, in an organized role in the church or a practical serving role or a leadership role. Um, but, but none of those gifts are going to be fully contained within that role, right? It's bigger than that because people are more complex than that. Maybe you, you serve on the Connect team every, every other week faithfully. That's your, that's your title of ministry in the church. But, but at the same time, you're having your, your neighbors over for dinner and you're, you're taking a meal to someone who's, you know, who's, whose kids are sick or you're, you're encouraging and praying for a, a brother or sister who's been wrestling with some things. That, that's... That's all part of serving the church. And don't be intimidated by that. Don't, don't overthink that. Just, just live your life for Christ. Give yourself to him and, and use the gifts that he's given you in the place that he's put you. Um, 
We, we so often get to idolizing certain categories of people. And, and, and we see the like, maybe I should give my life to Christ and, and, and sell everything I have and move to Bangladesh. Maybe. That's valid. Maybe the Lord has gifted you for that and that is a, that's what he's calling you to do. That's a valid thing, but it is just as valid to say, I am going to give my life for Christ and serve him with everything I have as a truck driver, a farmer, or a, or a, a plumber, or, or whatever it is, right? Like it, it doesn't necessarily mean moving across the world or selling everything I have or quitting my job. Can I serve him 100% in my job? as I share the gospel, as I love others, as I use the, the resources that I make to, to, to care for people to support the church. So don't, don't draw that line. Don't think that if, if I'm going to be 100% living for the Lord, I have to be a, a pastor or a missionary. No, you can be you just on fire and fully serving God. Maybe. Maybe you come to the point and go, ah, you know what? My job is constraining me. I can't serve the way I want to because of my job. Yeah, maybe, maybe you need to think about that. Maybe you need to make some transition there. But not necessarily. And just look at what you tend toward. What do you do well? What needs do you see around you that you can fill? Often you will just, you're, you're not going to notice it. It's obvious, right? Everyone must see it. No, you're the one who sees it because God has gifted you that way and those are the needs that you see, so fill it. Somebody else is looking at, at other needs. What do you see in front of you? And then lean into that. Just go for it. It's not like you can go wrong serving Christ. Accidentally missing where he's gifted you and serving him the wrong way. Like, go ahead and make that mistake. Give it a shot. We love you. We'll tell you if you're doing a terrible job. That's okay. Um, we'll help redirect you. Um, it's great. Just go for it. Give your life in serving him. And the settings that you find yourself in, filling the needs that you see in front of you, doing whatever you're able to do. And, and, and let's keep in mind, it won't be easy. right? Don't be discouraged when this becomes difficult. You go, oh, this cost me. Hey, this is hard on my family. Yeah. Do it well. Bring your family along. Help your kids understand what it means to, to sacrifice with, with joy. But it's not going to be easy. It will be difficult. There will be sacrifice. But, but persevere and em, embrace that as we suffer for the sake of Christ. So ministry in the church means that, that suffering with joy as stewards of God's grace. And then verse 28, um, with a singular focus. A singular focus. Him we proclaim, Paul says, warning everyone teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul puts this so clearly and boldly, him we proclaim. It's Jesus that we're talking about. That's what it's all about, proclaiming Christ. And so to be precise, as Paul talks about the stewardship that he's been given, um, we have these unique gifts, we have different abilities and, and angles, and we're wired different ways. But the stewardship, the core of it, the centerpiece, the one precious thing that has been entrusted to us is the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? There is no stewardship from God um, that, that points somewhere else. It's all about Christ. Nothing can take that position. So 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, 
I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. Our goal in all of our serving and all of our ministry is to point to Christ, to put Christ on display, to make him more fully known. And and notice, it's in proclaiming Christ that the mission of the church is fulfilled. Right? What's our, what's our mission at Redemption Olds? Do you know it? You familiar with it? Lost people saved, saved people mature, mature people multiplied, all the glory of God. Um, we're not creative around here on purpose. That's just, the, that's just the great commission said over again in our own words. Look at what Paul is saying. The goal of the church is what? Warning everyone. Warning sinners about God's wrath, calling them to repentance and faith as lost people saved. Warning believers away from sin and and warning them, calling them toward holiness. Teaching everyone that they might grow in their knowledge of Christ. That's, That's safe people matured. So that we might present every person mature in Christ. It's mature people multiply. There it is. So how do we do it? That's our mission. That's our stated purpose. This is what we want to do. Lost people saved, saved people mature, mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. How do we do it? Proclaiming Christ. A million different ways, proclaiming Christ. It's the gospel. Making the gospel more fully known in in breadth and in depth. Paul's about to say down in chapter 2, verse 3, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all there. Consistently warning, teaching, proclaiming Christ, we are able to present everyone mature in Christ. It's all about pointing to Jesus. It's all about pointing to Jesus. Man, the the, the church is so filled with with worldly strategies and, and human wisdom. And what we need is Jesus. I know there's complexity to it. I don't, want to, I don't want to oversimplify this. It's not as if you know, someone comes to you or their marriage is broken and you just say, Jesus loves you. That's not the answer. You're going to have to work harder than that. You're going to have to go deeper than that. There's work to do in applying the gospel to difficult situations. And yet in one sense, it is that simple. If the problem is depression or conflict in marriage or addiction or outburst of anger or enslavement to lust or or compulsive lying or pride, there, there might be some practical tools that are helpful, some, some secondary aids, may, maybe some, some medication or, or some communication strategies are going to be part of that process. But the solution, the ultimate fix is the gospel. It's Jesus. The road to, to maturity and health and holiness is Christ. So the, the root of our problem is sin. And so the solution that we need is Jesus. Truly understanding the gospel and how it applies to my particular situation. How the grace of God toward me ought to produce forgiveness in me and letting go of bitterness. How the reconciliation of God toward me ought to help me reconcile with someone who sinned against me. Whatever the situation, we've got to get back to understanding the gospel and the richness of it in that way.
So let's put this again to ourselves first. Are you growing in the knowledge of Christ? Are you learning and growing in him? Ask yourself, am I moving toward maturity? Am I more like him? Do I know more about him? Am I walking more closely with him today than I was a year ago? Church, there are are just far too many old Christians who are not mature Christians. Don't grow old as a believer. Grow up into Christ. Read the word for yourself. Learn it. Know it. Foster friendships with other brothers and sisters who can warn you when you need it, who can encourage you, who can pick you up, who can spur you on, challenge you. Be a part of the church. Gather faithfully. Listen to God's word preached. Grow in in obedience. Are you growing? Am I moving toward maturity? Now, it doesn't mean am I 100% mature today? No, we're not is a growth. It's slow and steady. It's moving the right direction. And then, am I ministering to others well? Am I living this out? Am I ministering to others well? As you, as you serve, as you show hospitality, as you, as you do those things that you even just naturally love to do, are you leveraging that for Christ? Are you proclaiming Christ in that? That's your ministry. Whatever that looks like in your life, deliberately and clearly pointing it back to Jesus. As you talk with your friend who's struggling, or your neighbor who who doesn't know the Lord, or your child who's rebelled against you for the thousandth time this minute, are you pointing to Christ? Do you just give pat answers, pop psychology, worldly wisdom, just kind of pat them on the head and say, everything will be okay? Or, Or are we bringing this to the gospel, are we, making this, are we making Christ more fully known in those situations? And that's true um, if you're ministering to someone who, who wants nothing to do with God, who doesn't know the Lord, or they wouldn't be interested in that solution. Maybe not. Maybe the Holy Spirit will be at work. And it's my job to point them to Christ. Or maybe you're a young believer ministering to a seasoned believer who's way down the road from you and the Lord, way more mature than you are, You know what? The most mature believers still need to be pointed to Christ. And they will only rejoice in being reminded again of his his grace and his holiness and his sovereignty and his faithfulness. They're not going to look back at you and say, I know that. Not stupid. Well, maybe they might because they're sinners too. Um, But you need to point them back to it again anyways. That's what we need. So we serve the body, suffering with joy, as stewards of God's grace with this singular focus. And then finally, and we'll be brief here, by the Spirit's power. A Spirit's power. Look at verse 29. Paul says, For this I toil, trying to present everyone in Christ mature, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he so powerfully works in me. It's hard work. It's really hard work. He is toiling and struggling. It's taking sacrifice and suffering. He's trying to grow people toward maturity. But how do we do it? With all his energy that so powerfully works in us. Little bonus, do you see the Trinity here? 
God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles the riches of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he does it by the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean you're the energizer bunny, right? It doesn't mean I, I don't get tired anymore. I don't, I don't need to sleep anymore. That'd be great. No. No, it's still a stri- trial, still a struggle, still takes work, it still takes discipline. And, but what it means is that the working of God's power through us is what actually brings about that maturity. It's, it's God at work. Like Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 3, we're, we're gardeners, right? Some of us are planters and some of us are waterers, but not one of us has a clue how to make growth happen. Right? God does that. That's a miracle. We plant the seed and we water it and go to sleep and hope something happens. That's the Holy Spirit work. Without that, without the Holy Spirit working through us, empowering our, our words and our pointing to Christ, there's nothing. Nothing grows. Anyone know what day it is today? Anyone check your liturgical calendar? Shout it out if you know what, what this Sunday is. It's Pentecost Sunday. Right? 50 days after Passover was the Feast of Pentecost. And it was at the Feast of Pentecost um, that, that the Lord poured out His Holy Spirit on the disciples for the first time. That's what many churches are making a big deal out of that today. It's, it's Pentecost Sunday. And, and I think we're, we miss that. God's Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ. Again, going back to this, remember who Jesus is as the, the creator of this universe, the one holding it all together, the one reconciling all things to himself, is in us. To work through us, to build us up, to strengthen the church. Jesus' favorite name for the Holy Spirit is the helper, the parakletos. He's our helper. And he's such a good helper. He's such a, a, a capable, wonderful helper. Jesus says, it's actually better for you that I go away. It's better for you to have him than to have me. Not, not me, me. Nobody wants me. But Jesus is saying this. Think about that. John 16, 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Do you believe that? Like, let that blow your mind. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit in you is better than Christ beside you. So let's start with what makes a little more sense to us. How awesome would it be if you had Jesus in the flesh going with you? Right, I'm going to go share the gospel, my friend. Jesus, can you come along and help out? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm going to go disciple a young believer and try to unpack God's word for him. Jesus, would you come and, and help? Boy, I'm going, to, I'm going to try and lead worship this Sunday. Jesus, do you, want to, do you want to help me plan that and lead that? Jesus, I'm going to go preach a sermon. Do you want to, do you want to work through that with me and preach that together? Jesus, I'm going to go parent my children. Um, Can you come and help me with this? How confident would you be? Like, how fearless would you be? How recklessly self-sacrificing would you be if you had Jesus in the flesh going with you? Like, you would be unstoppable. And you'd be right to be that confident. Jesus himself said, you know what? It's better if I go away 
and the Holy Spirit comes. What does the Holy Spirit do? He indwells us. He he gives us spiritual gifts. He convicts of sin and, and righteousness, but he has one singular job, and it's the same job as ours. The job of the Holy Spirit is to point to Christ. It's to proclaim Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't glorify himself. He doesn't say, hey, hey, look at me, everybody. No, he directs our hearts and our eyes to Jesus. Jesus said in, in uh, John 16, 14, he will glorify me for he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. So this whole thing of, of suffering with joy as stewards of the grace of God with this singular focus can only happen when it's spirit empowered. We need that. We need the helper. And God has given us himself, right? This is back to the whole idea of the, the Trinity. God himself as our helper. What does it mean to be spirit-empowered? How do I do that? How do I move forward practically in this? Um, well, the Holy Spirit is not a force. Right? He's not a power to be manipulated. He's a person, right? He's God himself. We need to recognize that. And I would just recommend um, four R's as a way of working this out. Four R's to to spirit empowerment. And the first, I'll I'll go through these slowly again. Don't, Don't have to scramble. Recognize, reach out, rest, and respond. So the first is recognize. Recognize your need for Him. Admit in prayer your desperate inability, your desperate need. And then reach out. Reach out and ask the Lord to empower you by His Spirit, to strengthen you, to to lead you. And then rest. Rest in His power. Now, it doesn't mean we don't do anything. There's there's this struggle and toil happening still, like move forward, press in in obedience, but do it with this hopeful, godly confidence that the Holy Spirit is in you. Toil and struggle while resting in his power, trusting him to do the work that he promised to do. And then finally respond. Respond with thanksgiving. Once you've recognized your need and reached out to God in prayer for help and rested in his power as you've worked diligently, praise him. Give him the glory. What a great hope we have. The perfect helper is eager to work through us. Partners with us. What a great hope. And we rest in him. And and the more weak and feeble and pathetic the person who goes out to do this unaccomplishable task, empowered by the Spirit, the more glory he gets in it. Right? The more that, that we just have to stand back and say, I didn't do that. I fumbled through my words so badly. I tried to share the gospel and I think I got every part of it wrong and the Holy Spirit saved him. Praise God, it wasn't me. So being that this Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, we're going to spend our prayer meeting this Wednesday focusing on our need for the Holy Spirit, praying that the Holy Spirit would, would be at work for His power as, as we seek to serve Him. So I just encourage you, make that a priority. If it's important to gather, and it is, let's gather on Wednesday. Let's gather for prayer together, 7.30 this Wednesday. But as we close this morning, I want us to 
um, to, to strive for this, to be faithful ministers of the church, building up the body of Christ, suffering with joy as stewards of grace, this, this singular focus on proclaiming Christ in the Spirit's power. That's our ministry. That's the stewardship that we have from God we are called to do. Let us give our lives to it for this, this sacred trust. And, and we're going to do it being reminded again of why. Why would we give our lives to this task? And the reason is because he gave his life for us. Because in his death, my sins are forgiven. And because in his resurrection, my eternity is secure. The gospel is not only our mission, it's also our only hope. Right? It is our only joy. And so we're going to take our own advice. We're going to turn our eyes back again to Christ as we celebrate communion together.